John chapter 1, we'll pick up a, a couple of verses uh, here this morning just for context. And our, our main uh, gospel lesson text will be uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But we, we start with uh, John chapter 1, verses 31 through 34, where we're uh, looking at John the Baptist. Uh, this is God's word, eternally true. Uh, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 31. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now uh, look over to chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheapest wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Here ends our reading. There's a response of, of uh, thankfulness that's printed for us in our bulletins. The word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. John makes the comment here, uh, verse 11, look there. Uh, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed. Uh, that if you study the Gospel of John or read any kind of introduction into it, you might read that, that John is structured around seven signs that Jesus does. One thing you'll also see in any of these introductions is that John calls the miracles signs. And that's unique to John. Uh, and there are these seven signs uh, that occur uh, throughout his, his gospel. And this was the, the first one. Uh, the question is, uh, what, does a sign, what does a sign do? And what do Jesus' signs or his miracles uh, do? Uh, and so uh, if you think about it in, in society, you can think about a sign. It's like a road sign. And, and the sign will say, um, you know, Wake Forest Road, and it'll have an arrow and say next right or something like that, or right lane only. 
Uh, a sign is something that, that points uh, to something. If you'd like to fill out blanks in an outline, there you go, we started already. Um, a sign points to something. Why does John call the miracles signs? It's because John is saying these miracles pointed to something. Now, what did the miracles point to? What does John show us about the miracles? We talked a little bit about this in, in Sunday school this morning. Um, some would say today that the, the signs point to the fact that you too can do miracles. Or that uh, anyone who's a believer will be like Jesus and be able to heal people. Or um, turn his water into Pepsi. Uh, or walk on water. Heal somebody else. And that, that it's a sign, Jesus doing these signs is a, a, a sign that believers today can do that if they're faithful. Uh, that's, that's the answer of, of those who are, you know, what gets called the, the health and wealth, um, uh, health and wealth theology uh, found in, typically in charismatic churches. Uh, is that what they are signs of? That Jesus is prompting us by his miracle doing that, that you should have faith too so that you can do these kind of signs and get whatever you want. Um, probably not. Um, some of you and friends uh, of, uh, uh, of yours have been uh, told by well-meaning Christians who believe this with a, uh, um, a, a near-death son or daughter or father or mother in the hospital, if you just believe hard enough, God will heal uh, this loved one of yours. Um, and then only to have that loved one die. Now, we just make the point to kill this argument completely. Um, Paul dies. Jesus dies. Peter dies. Every faithful, you know, every faithful Christian uh, since this day has died as well. So apparently, either you have the ability to do miracles and and heal yourself of all miracles, and you've just been unfaithful, or God doesn't like you and isn't doing miracles through you, um, or this is not a promise for you today. Um, and we'll say that the latter is true, uh, just by virtue of what happens in, in life. Um, so there's signs of something else. The sign points to something. Um, second line there for you in your introduction is that Jesus did many miraculous signs. He did many miraculous signs. Now, uh, we, we see this in verse 11, that this is the first of the signs that he did. John confirms that for us. And even though John includes only seven strategic signs, uh, from uh, chapter 2 here to chapter 11 is where the signs end. The last one is Lazarus being raised from the dead. Um, that John tells us in John 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, but these are written, he says in verse 31 there, 20:31. these seven that I wrote to you, these are written and they're enough. These are written that you may believe that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And, and so the signs are there uh, pointing to that very thing. Um, what are these signs pointing to is the question that we ask as we come to this first one. And that's a blank there for you. Uh, what are these signs pointing to? 
Or in other words, what are they revealing? Are they revealing that if you take this road, you'll get to Wake Forest? And if you'll take this road, you'll get to Durham? Okay, that's what a sign reveals something. It points to something, to some truth that will give you direction and belief in your life. And so, um, number one there, to see what Jesus' um, signs are pointing to, number one, Jesus' miraculous signs revealed his glory. Jesus' miraculous signs revealed his glory. Uh, we see this in verse 11. Look there to see that. This, the first of his miraculous signs, which Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, um, thus, with this miracle, with this sign, he revealed his glory. Now, we, we had seen John the Baptist say the same kind of thing. Look up at verse 31 of chapter 1. John the Baptist says, the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might, Jesus might be revealed. Reveal, reveal, same word there. Uh, so John's purpose is to reveal who Jesus is um, and that Jesus was someone who deserved glory and, and that these miraculous signs, verse 11 of chapter 2, do the same thing. They reveal Jesus' glory. Um, now, uh, one thing, uh, A, there in your outline, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' glory is a big deal. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' glory is a big deal. Uh, John uses glory and the glory word group like glorified and glorification, those kind of things. Um, he uses it 24 times. Uh, for perspective, Matthew uses the word glory and that whole word group, glorious, glory, glorify, three times, John 24. Uh, Mark uses it three times, John 24. Uh, Luke uses the glory word group 10 times. John uses it 24 times. Um, R.C. Sproul, in his series of books on the, the Trinity, he, he has you know uh, the holiness of God, which is about God the Father, and then he has the mystery of the Holy Spirit, which is about the Spirit. But the, the book about Jesus is the glory of Christ. And he, he spends his time in the Gospel of John uh, in, that, in that book because John cares so much about glory. And now the question is, what is glory? If you're like me, you're like, oh, that's such a nebulous term, right? It's so fuzzy, glory. What is that? Uh, and for years I've wondered, you know, what that, what that word is about. Um, here's a here's a good definition for you, a simple definition. If you plug this in every time you see glory, glorified, uh, glorify, um, glorification, um, it'll make sense, and you'll you'll see it there. So B, glory is one's greatness or magnificence. In some cases, perfection. Glory is one's greatness. Um, or, or one's magnificence. And it's a greatness or magnificence that deserves great honor and high praise. Glory is one's greatness or magnificence that deserves great honor or high praise. So let's plug it in here. Verse 11. This 
the first of his miraculous signs, which Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, he thus revealed his greatness, for which he deserves high honor and great praise. Or, or let's plug in the other synonym. By this sign, he thus revealed his magnificence. He revealed that he is one who should be greatly honored and highly praised. He revealed his glory, his greatness, his magnificence. Glory has this, because you've got the two sides, it's, it's, it's magnificence and greatness that deserves honor and, and praise. You've got this idea of it's greatness that should be recognized, that acknowledged. Uh, and, and so that's what glory is about. But um, to glorify, number one there, be one there. Um, to glorify uh, is uh, one, or sorry, to glorify is to greatly honor or to highly praise. So when scripture says, glorify the Lord with me, it means highly honor the Lord with me. It means highly pray, greatly praise the Lord with me. Um, so that's a, a quick little thing that you can put in there. So to glorify is to greatly honor, to highly praise one for his, her, or its magnificence or greatness. So when you glorify, you're doing the kind of back half of that. You're honoring somebody or something, uh, or you're, you're, you're praising, highly praising some person or some thing for its greatness or for its magnificence. That's what you're doing when you glorify. So when I glorify Michael Jordan, I am praising him for his greatness on the basketball court. Okay, I'm glorifying him. Um, number two, um, to glorify can also mean to make one magnificent or great so as to be a right recipient of praise and honor. So to glorify means to greatly honor or highly praise one for his or her or its magnificence or greatness. It can also mean to glorify is to make one so that he's worthy of that praise or honor. And so Jesus praised this in a number of places, like when he says to the Father, Father, and he's talking about the cross, now glorify your son. Um, make me, you put me at your right hand, that I will be honored and praised and no longer just a, a discarded human being on a cross that people are mocking, glorify. Or when we talk about us, like Paul in Romans 8, that whoever's foreknown, right? You know, the, the, these, he calls, he foreknows, he, and he glorifies. He makes worthy of honor and praise. Why? Because we are now images in glorification, when we are brought uh, to be with God and, and, and given our glorified bodies, when Jesus comes again, we are without sin. And we become God's Mona Lisa's. Get it? So our glorification is not that people are deifying us, making us like God, but they're saying, wow, it's like us looking at the work of a great artist, the artist being God, and saying, this is a fine work of art. The Mona Lisa. Wow. Who did, who painted this anyway? It was Da Vinci, wasn't it? 
Yeah, thanks, thanks, Faith. I looked at Faith for confirmation there. It was like, Da Vinci is a great artist because this is a great piece of art. Or if you found, found some uh, fantastic vase and, and you were an archaeologist and you didn't know it was a fantastic vase and you did all the work with the, all the right chemicals, you're making that so that it would be rightly glorified or honored for the glory it deserves, for the praise it deserves, that it's not getting because it's covered with mud right now. So we're not glorified right now because we're covered with the mud of sin and our own sinful motivations and that kind of thing. But in glorification, we become stripped of our sin nature and always wanting and actually doing the will of God and no longer having bodies that are decaying or having one ear that doesn't match the other, like mine, um, that my brother still makes fun of. Um, uh, you know, but, but everything just perfection, right? Not that we're, not that we're God, but, but that's glorification. Okay. Uh, and so, but this idea with glory is the idea of greatness or magnificence that's receiving high honor, high praise. Uh, so see, uh, question is, what is Jesus glory that John highlights throughout his gospel? In other words, uh, what is great and magnificent about Jesus. So those are your two lines there. What is Jesus' glory that John highlights through it, throughout his gospel? Or what is great and magnificent about Jesus? Again, in John, Jesus' glory is a big deal. And so what is great about Jesus that John is emphasizing? What is magnificent about Jesus that John emphasizes that maybe wasn't emphasized as much by the first three Gospels, which had been in the hands of the church for 30 years uh, by the time John is, uh, 20, 20 to 30 years by the time John is writing. So number two, number two, Jesus' miraculous signs revealed his glory, that is his greatness, revealed Jesus' greatness in, in two ways, two prominent ways in John. Uh, the first of which we'll talk about here, which is your number, which is your number two. Um, the way Jesus is great and magnificent that deserves high honor is in his being the special set apart son, set apart from all else who have ever walked on this earth. Uh, his special set apart son and rightful king of God's people. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> but that's what, that's what, that's what his miracles are showing in part. Next week, we'll talk about the other part, the other item of Jesus' greatness that the signs are highlighting, uh, that they're signs of, the, the, the miracles are pointing to, these two things. And the first thing the miracles point to is that Jesus is king. He's no ordinary human being. He's the one set above all the other Israelites, like David, like Solomon, like Rehoboam. The one set above that God calls in 2 Samuel 17 or 7, 14, my own special son. The one set apart from, I love all my children. God's people are called his children in the Old Testament. But I have this one special son that I've set over them for their good. And so Jesus' glory is revealed. That is what the signs are pointing to. What his miracles are pointing to is that Jesus is this one special one, the king, that God has anointed through John the Baptist. God has anointed to set over his people for their own, for their own good. Jesus' magnificence is that he is king, right? 
king, unless you're talking about uh, King Charles III, you know, you think about a king being magnificent, right? We don't think about King Charles III, Prince Charles being magnificent. Uh, you might look at, you know, a banquet that he would be at as magnificent, but maybe not him. But, but think about a king of great honor. Think about Solomon in all his royal robes. Think about David as a warrior and as a king, magnificent. Solomon's palace that we, that we looked at when we were going through First Kings, how, how it was magnificent. And, and all that, you know, and the Queen of Sheba comes and she sees Solomon's palace and says, This is magnificent. This is greater than I was told. And so Jesus' magnificence, his glory, in part, is that he's, is that he's king. He's king. Um, where do we get this idea that the signs of Jesus uh, were pointing to as being the king of God's people first? Uh, your A there. Um, first of all, in chapter 1, Nathaniel stated that Jesus was the king of God's people. In chapter 1, verse 49. Look at that there. Then Nathaniel declared, verse 49 of chapter 1. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's recognized by Nathaniel for his magnificence. Um, he's glorified, right? He's given high honor, high praise by Nathaniel. You know, again, no longer can anything good come out of Nazareth. <laughs> you know, so what, what a contrast from the lips of Nathaniel, from almost a despising of Jesus to meeting him and granting him honor, rabbi. Uh, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. So Nathaniel tell, tells us this. Um, John the Baptist had anointed Jesus to, you know, again, verse uh, 31, to reveal him to Israel, calling him the son of God, verse 34, which has that dual meaning of being second person of the Trinity, divine from with no beginning, but also the one I just anointed. John the Baptist said, God has told me that one will come along whom I, I am to anoint as the new king. Um, of course, Jesus comes out of the, the gates after the, the wilderness uh, time and, and announces the gospel as what? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's king, king, king. And so John the Baptist is just in the, in the line of, of Samuel and very much being a, a reflection of Samuel of the Old Testament. Miraculous birth from a mother who's too old to, or can't have kids. And God grants the kid and then devoted to the Lord in a special way like Samuel had been. Then Samuel anoints the first two kings of Israel. John the Baptist does the same. And Luke draws those parallels very well in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, of, of Luke. But John the Baptist anoints Jesus as king and, and uh, uh, the spirit of God comes down upon Jesus to anoint Jesus uh, as king. And so John the Baptist calls him son of God also in this sense that he is second Samuel seven fourteen, God's special son raised up above all Israelites from them and now above them to rule over them. And so we see this already in chapter one. Uh, that Jesus is uh, recognized as king of Israel. Um, but there's something else besides the testimony of these two men that God purposefully inscripturates in our text this morning. 
chapter or chapter two, verses one through 11. God purposefully inscripturates something that's kind of like a, huh, for us as we look at it. The content of one through 11 in chapter two. Like, huh, what's going on here? Um, and, and a number of huns going on here. Jesus' interaction with his mom. And um, interestingly, Mary's never called Mary in the Gospel of John. She's just called the mother of Jesus. Um, I won't speculate on that. I don't don't know why. Uh, but but uh, something else going on here. Why is the first miracle turning water into wine? Um, well, God's putting this there on purpose. He's inscripturating these words in this instance um, with, uh, with John. Again, John says, John 20, verse 30, Jesus did a ton of miracles, but I've only included seven. Why didn't Jesus start with one that was like made more sense to us and just say, Jesus did one before, but this is the second miracle he did. Why didn't he start with the second one or not even, or not even, even name them? Uh, but here's what, B, B, to B. Jesus' sign, okay, John identifies this for us in verse 11. This is a sign. What's the sign? The sign is of abundant wine showed or revealed was a sign of that Jesus was king. Okay, this, this has significance. And if you're an Old Testament Jew, you know it, but we're not. So we're going to talk about it and, 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 and uh, get, this, get this meaning uh, for So Jesus takes these, these pots uh, for ceremonial uh, uh, washing. Uh, Jews used to wash themselves before they went in to, to worship God. Uh, and, and he has them filled up with water um, and just, you know, uh, it says to the servants, fill these with water. So it's kind of like the magician, right? He says, brings the volunteer up on stage and says, this is an ordinary ring, right? It's a solid. You can't bend it. You know, it doesn't have a, a kink in it or anything. Twist this around as much as you want to. He's verifying, right? These servants know this was just water. We went to the water, the place we always get our water from, and we put water in this. It was water when we got it. It was water when we put it in the pot. It was water when we brought it back into the the, the party, the wedding feast, these were typically a week long, <laughs> these wedding feasts. And, and we brought it in and it was water when we set it down. But now when Jesus said, take some over to the master, it had turned to wine. You see that there? They say, you know, those who had, uh, verse 9, um, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Okay, so Jesus does this, this uh, miracle, creates this, creates this sign in verses 7 through 10, um, and it points to Jesus being king. How so? Number one, number one. So we're going to walk, walk through this. In the promised land of the Old Testament, in order for God's people to have full blessing, full blessing in the land, they needed to have a king. Okay, they needed to have a king. If they wanted, in the promised land, if they wanted the full blessing of God, if they wanted to inherit all the blessings of the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, they needed to have a king, which was prescribed for them in Deuteronomy 17. Okay, they need to have that. Uh, they need to have a king um, descended from David. Um, that's 2 Samuel 7, uh, reigning over them. Um, so the king is prescribed in Deuteronomy 17. 
um, God's people go for a while, uh, 200 to 400 years, uh, without a king. That's the book of Judges. And that doesn't turn out too well. In fact, they inherit the curses of the covenant during the period of the Judges, over and over again. And the refrain, the point of the writer of Judges is this refrain. And I've uh, put those 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, 21, 25, all say this. And in those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel and everybody did what he wanted. Not what God wanted. Everyone did what he wanted. And he reaches this crescendo by the end of the book of Judges where they're mutilating concubines and almost extinguishing a whole tribe of Israel, the Benjamites. That's how well things are when you don't have a king in the promised land. When you disregard and don't come to the Lord and say, God, give us this king. Deuteronomy 17. Not a king like the nations, like they asked for later in 1 Samuel 8. But a king, Deuteronomy 17, which God says, which I give to you. The one I choose, God says. And Saul is the one they chose. The one who's a head taller than all the other Israelites. The one they think, boy, if we got him, no one will beat us up. Right? But God's choice is David, which we see, I think, in First First Samuel 16 uh, there. Uh, so they needed a king to inherit the full blessings in the promised land, a son of David reigning over them. Um, number two, as the people lived in faithfulness under a Davidic king, as the people lived in faithfulness under a Davidic king, many blessings would be in the land, including an abundance, guess what, of wine including an abundance of wine. This is one of the covenant blessings in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. And one of the things that, that uh, uh, you see um, um, throughout the Old Testament um, is a blessing uh, to, and a sign of blessing uh, to God's people. Um, next line there, lack of wine, likewise, is named as, by God as a curse. It was a sign to God's people when they didn't have wine, when they didn't have abundant wine, that they were under God's curse and were not fully experiencing God's blessings. And so in the curses of the covenant, it says you won't have wine. Um, Genesis 49, 11, Jacob's blessing upon Judah, the father of the kingship, right? David comes from Judah is that uh, there will be abundant wine um, because of him. Um, Jeremiah, or Genesis uh, 49. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 39, and 51, I'll talk about it. It's a curse when there's not wine in the land. And David himself in Psalm 4, verse 7, talks about the Lord blessing him with abundant wine. Um, now, I want to qualify this. Scripture is very clear that drunkenness is a bad thing. We've got that in Ephesians 5.8. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the, the, the um, a teaching there is you want to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And then when you're controlled by wine, you're not controlled by the Spirit of God. You're controlled by the wine. And the wine is taking you around and whipping you around like you're a lassoed person on a rope, just throwing you 
here and there. Uh, and it's like, you know, I've recounted to you, you know, when I've had surgeries and I'm coming out of anesthesia, uh, Betsy, am I nice? No, I'm mean. Only to me, though. Only to Betsy when I, when I come out of anesthesia. Um, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm, self-control's gone. I say, I need a sandwich. <laughs> I need something to eat. You know, and I say it in that way. No self-control. No, this is my wife. Hey, Betsy, could you I get the nurse? I, I need a sandwich or something. Because uh, I'm, I'm about to fall over here. Um, or, or like Danny Trejo, you know, who's he, hangry with, not without the sticker, Snickers, you know, Marsha, 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 that commercial. <laughs> that, but, but, uh, and the book of Proverbs says, you know, beer, beer and, and, and drunkenness causes great, and scripture is very clear, both testaments, that drunkenness, that too much wine, that heart, and it does all three, hard liquor, wine, and beer is something that brings destruction and is dangerous to even the greatest of the people of God. And that's, it, it is to be avoided. It brings, it brings great harm, uh, too much alcohol. Uh, but alcohol in its, um, uh, in its moderation, without drunkenness, is not sin. And in fact, it's presented as great, as great blessing. Okay. Um, so don't get drunk, but realize that, that wine is considered a blessing um, in uh, Israel. The Lord's Supper was celebrated with wine. Um, Jesus sa says, um, you know, that he, he admits, you know, I, um, I'm in the company and, and even called a drunkard and a, a glutton. That wasn't true. He wasn't eating too much or getting drunk, but he was celebrating with sinners who were rejoicing at, at their newfound salvation. Okay. Um, so, uh, number three there, not having wine was also a sign of not being in the promised land at all, but being still in the wilderness. That's what Deuteronomy 29, 6 says. When you were in the wilderness, speaking of the days of Moses, you had no wine. You were without that. But now you're in the land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, if you recall some of those passages, you know, talking about you know, just wine flowing. In the promised land, a sign of God's, a sign of God's blessing. And then number four, through his prophets, God told his people that after the exile to Babylon, after the exile to Babylon, God would restore them. He would restore them to the promised land under a Davidic king. And the flow of, guess what? The flow of wine in the land would once again be abundant. Here's what Joel says about the return from exile and God's people being in the promised land again. A sign to them that God had returned them, he was behind it, and that they were now in his full blessings as they returned to the promised land and had a Davidic king over them. Joel says this, this is prior to the exile, talking about after the exile, Joel 2.19. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Joel 2.24, the threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. This is talking about being blessed in the promised land after the exile. Uh, Joel 3.18, in that day, the mountains will drip with new wine. 
Get that image, it's just overflowing. The mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. And what Jim read for you from Amos 9, 14, where you got to see that, that whole context there. Amos at the end of this, you know, his whole book of saying exile's coming, punishment's coming, exile's coming, and what should you do knowing IHCs? Repent, yeah, so that you push it back. And they did. Amos was one of the early prophets and God's people did repent and, and they, they held off the exile for a long time. But finally it came. But Amos talked about God would restore his people under a Davidic king. And he says this in verse 13, he's talked about wine flowing. And then verse 14, Amos 9, 14, I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. <clears throat> they will plant vineyards and drink their wine they will make gardens and eat their fruit. Okay. Um, so wine is a blessing when you have a Davidic king over you. When you have a Davidic king over you, God's people are walking in righteousness and faithfulness. And God is giving new grain and new wine and it's abundant. And one of the signs that God's people weren't being faithful and one of the things that happens when they don't have a faithful son of David over them is that God withholds the rain. He withholds the crops. Foreigners come in and, 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 and cause a heavy and bring up on them heavy taxation upon them. And they enter into a period of scarcity. Now, number five, number five. In Jesus' day, though the people of God had partially returned from exile, not all the Israelites came back. This is how Paul, shortly after the days of Jesus, could go from city to city and find synagogues, right? Not all the Jews had come back. They were only partially uh, back uh, in Israel. But in Jesus' day, the people of God had partially returned to the promised land from Babylon. Many, many of the promises of restoration to the land had not yet been fulfilled. That is, restoration. When Jesus arrives on the scene, Restoration had not fully come. Restoration had not fully come. This is why in the Gospel of Matthew, in, in chapter 2 of Matthew, when the, when the uh, Jewish children are being slaughtered two years in, and younger in Bethlehem, and there, there's the, uh, Matthew quotes Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had been talking about when Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and slaughters the kids and carries off the people into exile so that Israel is in ruin. Matthew says, this is a fulfillment of that as well. It happened during the days of Jeremiah when the children were slaughtered and, and, and Jerusalem mourning for her children. Jeremiah had meant it when Nebuchadnezzar came in and that happened. But now it happens again in the days of Jesus' birth. Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. They're dead. So Jesus is born into an incomplete restoration. When Jesus is born, the king is Herod. Their ruler is Rome. Restoration was not full when Jesus came on the scene. And that's why people are looking for a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one who's the king. Again, they had a prophet, John the Baptist. They had plenty of priests, but they needed an anointed king 
for restoration to be complete because they were still a desolate land. Rachel weeping for her children. Not all the Jews had come back. They had not been gathered from the nations like the Old Testament prophets said they would be after exile. I will bring all my children back from the nations. They will be here and I will set David again like uh, uh, um, you read in Amos there as Jim read for it. I will restore David's fallen tent, meaning his kingdom. And that hadn't happened when Jesus came on the scene. And so people were looking for a king. They were looking for an anointed one. They were looking for a new David because a new David, a new king, was key for them experiencing all the blessings that God had for his covenant people, including abundant wine. Starting to see why this is a sign that Jesus is king. So, number six. Uh, or actually, uh, the second part, um, of, of five. Most importantly, the restoration promise of the son of David to reign again as king had not yet come to be. And so we, we see this in the Old Testament prophets, the latter chap chapters of Ezekiel talk about this king from David. Hosea talks about this. Hosea uh, like 110 and, and, and 3.5 talk about David reigning again. Um, uh, Haggai uh, speaks of this as well. But, but here in Amos, there where we started uh, with what, whatever verse that was, the very first verse, uh, Amos 9, 11, um, says there that uh, the son of David would reign again after the exile. And so the exile was still going on. Restoration was not complete when Jesus comes on the scene. So he gives them a sign that he's bringing the exile to an end. So number six, Jesus making wine abundant at this wedding was a sign that the son of David king, Jesus making wine abundant at this wedding, overflowing these jars, 20, 30 gallons, um, overflowing. Uh, that's 120 gallons altogether. There were six, six times 20 is 120, six times 30 is 180. So somewhere between 100 and 120 and 130 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Uh, overflowing wine. Um, by the way, which is the best, not the worst. Um, in the Old Testament, it had basically been that the best king had come first, David. All the other kings get compared to David, don't they? And he walked in the ways of his father David and did what was right and good in Israel. Or and he did not walk in the ways of his father, David. And he turned to other gods and God cursed the land. So that had happened in the Old Testament. You had the best wine first. You had David come first in this abundance in the land and Solomon at first in the first part of his reign. And then it kind of just tapers off. And even the great kings that we have, Hezekiah and Josiah and Joash, they all have these unfaithful periods of their lives where they don't end well. But then all of a sudden, Jesus, the son of David, comes on the scene and God has saved the best wine for last. The best son of David for last. One who's better than, the, than David himself. As Jesus himself said, one greater than Solomon is here, speaking of himself. So Jesus making wine abundant at this wedding is a sign that the son of David king had come, bringing with him the full restoration. 
bringing with him the full restoration of the people of God post-exile, complete with flowing, abundant wine. Verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. He deserves honor. He's the king. His presence among God's people means wine flows in abundance. It means they can inherit all the blessings that God would have for his people because he's present. If you don't have the king, you're in the book of Judges. You're getting oppressed over and over again by your own sin nature, by those around you. You don't have the protection of your king in heaven. But if Jesus is your king, then you have his protection. Then you have his blessings uh, for this age and in the age to come beyond. So number or so letter C, letter C. Because Jesus is king of God's people. Because Jesus is king of God's people, all God's people can have an end, an end to their exile from God. So if you came from outside the church, if you didn't grow up in the church, um, you were in exile. Right? You're off in exile. You weren't part of Israel. Um, you weren't in that place where God was sending the rain to give you abundant crops. You had no promise upon you, no covenant upon you that promised you abundant wine and new grain and no one to harm you. But if Jesus is your king, then those blessings start or come to be in your life. Your exile is ended. And so Jesus is king of God's people. All God's people can have an end to their exile from God, their exile from God, and have a new beginning of living in the blessings, of living in the blessings that God has for his people through their great king, Jesus. What was the problem for God's people in the first century? When Jesus arrived, they didn't have their son of David king. So they didn't have the blessings of the covenant. They were an oppressed people. Uh, they were literally occupied militarily uh, by a foreign nation uh, and, and governed by them. God through the prophets said that a sign that God's people were being oppressed and that God was judging them was that they would hear foreign tongues in their own nation. And so they were hearing Latin and Greek in the promised land. Um, they were not experiencing restoration. They were still in many ways in exile. And so Jesus comes and he gives this sign, your exile is ended. The king has come. I've been anointed. Um, I'm your king. Perhaps that's what's going on with his interaction with his mom. Um, he says there, look up there. Um, she said, when the wine is gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And he says, dear woman. He doesn't say, mom. <laughs> he says, dear woman. And it's not a it's not a it's not a rude phrase, uh, but it's not super warm either. Uh, but but perhaps what's going on here is that Jesus has already been anointed king. And, and, and now, just as um, um, Bathsheba talks to Solomon when Solomon's anointed as king, 
she then begins to talk to Solomon, her son, as king, no longer my son. I need to obey him, not the other way around. Uh, and, and, and so you, you see that in the next uh, verse there, verse five, his mother tells uh, the servants, do whatever he tells you. We'll talk about this some more uh, next week. Uh, but Jesus has become king. Uh, even Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, uh, perhaps we're seeing here, begins to understand this. Obey the king, she says. So that's the good news about Jesus. You have a king who brings all the covenant blessings that God promises and wants to give to his people. Um, now today, that's not uh, abundant wine necessarily, but it is the fruit of the vine, fruit of the spirit, fruitfulness in your life, that kind of thing as we've talked about before. Now our summary, summary. Jesus' glory, Jesus' glory, that is Jesus' greatness and magnificence that's deserving high honor and praise is in part that he is the specially set apart king. He's a glorious one, one who deserves honor because he's our king. One greater than Solomon has come. He's our specially set apart king who brings to all his people restoration. Restoration from broken lives. Restoration from wrong ideas about how to live. Restoration from false ideas about what's true in life. And who is God and what kind of way should we walk? Should I take revenge or should I forgive? He restores us from that. And he restores all of us from our, the, the broken things and our hurts and pains in the past. And he becomes to us, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 1, the God of all comfort. He restores us. Um, he's our king who restores us. He brings his people restoration after their pre-faith exile from his blessings. Let's pray.